today in the front room. Why? So it doesn't be that noisy in here. Okay. Is it too noisy when I talk to Dave? Yeah. Is it shouty? And it. We, we, if you, if we wanted to be quiet, we have to do it in the front room. Okay. Shall I go and talk to? Shall I go and shout to Dave in the front room? Yeah. Yeah. That's a good place to do it. And so peaceful until. Welcome to Sustainable 171. Welcome yourself all to Sustainable 171. We are back. Again. We sort of came back anyway. <laughs> Again. But this time we're back for, well, some more. More babbling. Babbling mm. is commencing. Yes, how are you? How are things? Uh, I'm alright, thanks. Yeah, you know, uh, I have I have no reason to complain. Apart from the whole global pandemic killing loads of people thing. But it hasn't killed me yet, so that's good. Uh, yeah, no, very good. Um, are we still recording this under fear of waking up children? Uh, no, no, we've done that. Um, <laughs> children, <laughs> child has been woken up. So now uh, Mrs. O has the pleasure of looking after two um, bored children. Three. Um, so um, <laughs> She's not looking after we, me at uh, the moment, that's the point. <laughs> Welcome to Sustainable. We are your friendly little weekly environment podcast. Ain't we all? Yes. All about people and the planet. And why, despite everything being nosed, we can have a little thinky and a chuckle about it every now and then. Yes? Yes. And to whom about what are we going to be thunked upon this week, Oh, Going to be thunked upon? Yeah, thunk, someone's going to thunk at us. Who's going to, who's going to thunk <laughs> at us, Oh. Well, we're going to be thunked at by a rather clever and excellent person called Mark Linus. Now, many of you will know who Mark Linus is. I might have heard of him. He is an author, uh, formerly an activist, formerly an advisor to national governments. He's very, very good at this whole climate thing. And he wrote a book back in the day called Six Degrees. uh, And he's written another book, which is... Well, he'll tell you about it in detail. It's not, it's not just an update to it. It's a new book, but it's called Six Degrees, Our Final Warning. Yeah, Six Degrees with a Vengeance. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> it's that kind of book, basically. Yeah. Um, but, Bruce Willis doesn't but survive this... the film of this book. <laughs> no, no. But so we had a really good chat with Mark um, last week over over video conferencing. Obviously, everyone locked down. All is locked down, surrounded by children. I am locked down, surrounded by piles of clothes and Mark is locked down in the beautiful Welsh borders uh, so we had a lovely chat we uh, we talked about his book we talked about climate change climate science how bad it could get how how much on the way to it being that bad we already are and we talked about some of the stuff Mark has done like he used to be one of them people who tore up GM crops in secret and kind of changed his mind about all that and went off as Ol says to you know to, to work inside uh, advising governments and things including at some of the big massive climate talks so we talked about all them things didn't we all? Uh, we did, and we, you know, we stared straight in the face of just how bad uh, things are going to get. Um, which, you know, on a kind of interesting academic point, 
it's worse than I've ever really heard. Um, so that's... Because <laughs> we talk about... So there's that. You know, we always <laughs> talk about, like, what two degrees is like and three degrees. But as Mark points out, no one really goes to sort of five degrees and six degrees. So that is a whole new level of really bad. Um, so Yeah, it turns out there's a reason why people don't go there. Yeah, yeah. So look, it's, it's actually it's a very light-hearted chat at times. And, it, and, and Mark, as you will hear in the, in the interview, is fundamentally optimistic. But if you are quite understandably not in the market for any kind of end of the world end of life on earth type grief then go away um just before any of that just the usual disclaimer i don't know why i do this disclaimer now given that it doesn't apply to me but anyway all does work for an environmental charity but these are very much his own views my own <laughs> views and of course mark's own views i don't care what you think um but all and mark might so if you've got any beef take it up with them directly and not with anyone who might employ them yes Hello, Mark. Hello, Ollie. Hello, Dave. Hello, Mark. How are you doing? I'm fine. How are you? Uh, all right. Are you... Uh, oh, obviously, you're locked down. How is your lockdown going? What's lockdown mean? Uh, <laughs> my lockdown is embarrassingly pleasant. Um, <laughs> I'm in the Welsh borders, surrounded by green hills, and a babbling stream goes around the house. So I would like this to continue indefinitely. <laughs> um, because <laughs> it's just so lovely um, and you don't have to be anywhere else um, and as it is in fact even having you know having a book coming out and the whole travel schedule and publicity all that kind of stuff it's all gone disappeared evaporated into thin air everything you do now is on zoom and it, that's actually the way i prefer it so i'm quite happy about everything except the fact that there are a lot of people dying out there in a horrible pandemic yes yeah i know yeah, there is that. Yes, yes there is that. Um, so you've got a book out already. Yeah, it is. It is out um, in the world. Um, yes, it was. It was. Uh, it was released to zero acclaim um, on April the sixteenth. <laughs> now I, I can't complain because people had their minds on other things. But uh, yes, it's out. Perhaps you'd like me to put the price down. Well, I was thinking two pounds. Because three pounds is just naked profiteering for a book <laughs> mere. 912 pages long. So before we get into that book, um, just tell us a little bit about you. I'm sure lots of people who listen to The Babble will know about you. Um, but in case they don't, tell us a bit about your story. And I'm, I'm particularly interested in how, I hope I got this right, you went from like trashing fields of GM crops uh, and throwing pies in the faces of authors and stuff to being like a national government advisor and now writing all sorts of exciting books. Tell us all about that sort of journey. Oh, thank you. Well, I've, I guess I guess I've had an interesting life. Um, so, I mean, I started at post-university in the direct action movement, as it was then. This was the kind of tail end of the Rhodes protests, uh, mid-90s. Um, so there was a whole sort of grassroots ecological scene out there where we went out doing actions against corporations, against people who are trashing nature in any which way. And that really got going for me as a big campaign in the anti-GMO stuff, uh, which was, um, I think, about 1998 onwards. 
And given that there was a direct GMO action being, focus, sorry, GMO being drug, genetically G- modified, yeah, g- g- genetically modified crops. And so we used to go out in the middle of the night and and trash them, cut them down, um, you know, all dressed in camouflage gear and, you know, no ID. And uh, sometimes the police would turn up and you'd have to run for your life. And, you know, it was a, <laughs> it was very much, a, um, how to say, a grassroots thing. But what is a GMO? It's an organism which has had an external gene artificially inserted to give it new properties. For example, corn. Here's the DNA. Um, that we and modify. so the long arc of the story is that I then later changed my mind about the GM issue in particular. One or two other things as well, but that was probably the most thing that got most people's attention. Um, because if you look at the science, actually, it turns out that the the genetic modification is, is is largely a beneficial technology and beneficial environmentally. But we didn't know that at the time. And back in 98, it looked it looked scary. It looked like it was all about big corporations using more pesticides. But um, in the fullness of time, if evidence being what it is, you can change your mind. That's the great thing about science. So for me, I suppose I've shifted from being a kind of radical environmental campaigner to being somebody who tries to be more science-led, more evidence-led. So now I'd call myself a pro-science campaigner, probably. But I don't think that's much different from being an environmentalist, because ultimately, if you're going to solve ecological problems, you've got to be science-based as well. Otherwise, you A, don't know what's going on, and you B, don't know how to solve them. So you uh, you first came to my kind of attention. Um, actually, I first, I first remember seeing your face in The Age of Stupid, that's not nice uh, no that's the name of a film <laughs> oh, <right. laughs> and it's not a film it wasn't my house mark. no <laughs> uh, it's a film in which uh, a film that kind of for anyone who hasn't seen it, it's very good by Franny Armstrong go and look, look at it but it, it sort of is from the future looking back going hang on a minute why didn't we act um, well, I, star, and- I co-star with the late great Pete Postlethwaite we had an unspoken collective pact to pretend climate change wasn't happening as though as long as we ignored it hard enough, it wouldn't be true. Well, amazing! It was an amazing experience. And uh, I think the film, even though, what is it, 10, 15 years ago, really stands the test of time. Um, I've watched it again recently, and uh, it's just as moving and uh, as wonderful. as Yeah, yeah, uh, it's, it's on YouTube, so um, check it out, The Age of Stupid. Well, it was, yeah, it was an amazing film, and it got, you know, it's an extraordinary story of, like, tiny budget, massive impact, Hollywood A-listers, you know, live streamed in thousands of places. It was, it was ahead of its time and incredible. But you were on there as the kind of chief sort of clever science person saying, yes, climate change really is bad because you'd written this book at the time called Six Degrees. Um, and that kind of set out what happens with each degree of warming. So tell us about your new book, which is kind of an update of that, essentially, isn't it? Yeah. So the new book is a sequel follow up. I mean, it's completely new, but it uses the same formula of looking at a degree by degree picture of the future based on the best available climate science. So, um, I mean, what's new now is we're actually living in the one degree world. So it's a a degree warmer than it was in pre-industrial times. That wasn't quite the case when I wrote the first one back in 2007. Um, So we're now kind of in chapter one, as was then the future, as is now the present. Um, Well, things in uh, in what? In 13 years, things have changed that much that we're now definitely in. Yes, I mean, we were close to one degree then, but we're now over the line. So it's it's quite interesting just to see sort of the future spooling out in front of you, if you like, and some of the things which were then predictions like, big impacts say on the coral reefs due to bleaching were then 
still in the future and are now already happening. So there's a lot of things which were kind of scary predictions, which were in the original six degrees, which have already happened or are currently underway. But the, you know, the idea really was to update what what happens at two degrees, which we're obviously still heading into three, four, five, even the worst case scenarios. See, and a lot of people, uh, you know, it's weird. A lot of environmental campaigners are accused of being, you know, alarmist or scaremongering or apocalyptic. Actually, I find there's very little that anyone says about the really high degree scenarios. No one, like, where's where's the scientific studies even on five or six degrees? They've been in the projections for a long time as a worst case scenario, but nobody models them, nobody looks at it. It's almost like it's too scary for that for anyone to dare peer into peer over that abyss, and so the final chapters of the book aim to do that as well. Go on then, give us a give us a, a potted highlights um, <laughs> of what. uh, I shouldn't be asking this because I know how I react inside, uh, which is not good. But give us us the highlights of a five degree or six degree world. All has significant form on freaking out about this sort of stuff. As do I, to be fair. (laughs) So if you you could try and not freak us out too much whilst also explaining about (laughs) heat death and flooding and uh, the death of everything, that'd be great. Well, heat death and flooding and death of everything happened before five degrees. Oh, um, okay. I mean, so heat, heat death is a really interesting one, which happens between three, four degrees, where large areas of the subtropics essentially become biologically uninhabitable. Uh, the technical term is the wet bulb temperature. So essentially, you can't lose heat by sweating because the the sort of relative humidity is uh, and is so high. Um, so Prince compared- Andrew will be all right, but the rest of us, <laughs> not so much. Oh, don't mention that disgusting toad. Um, so, <laughs> you know, uh, the Middle East, uh, South Asia, China, there's a lot of places which are currently home to billions of people, which would be un- biologically uninhabitable. So, you know, people would be able to live there anymore, nor would any other warm-blooded animal. And so it would be in the process even fairly early on. This, is like, this isn't like business as usual. This is with some mitigation, that we'd be head, we're heading into this world which we've begun to make too hot for us to survive in. And I think that's quite, in a, quite a difficult thing to, to realise. But if you, if you go out even further and look at five degrees or six, I mean, um, you'd be, you know, I, I don't think civilization can survive that kind of, a, of, a, of an impact. And so you're, you'd probably be... And, and, I mean, this is just... You, you can't do anything other than just speculate. But my speculation is that you would you'd see some human survivors in some places which are still tolerable, I don't know, up in the Antarct down in the Antarctic or up in the, you know, the Arctic parts of Canada or something, places where you'd still be still be cool enough to grow crops and you'd have enough fresh water, but no civilization to speak of. And if you go higher in six degrees or thereabouts, it begins to look possible that we could actually extinct life completely, begin to turn the planet into Venus. So um if you burn all the fossil fuels, that becomes a significant possibility. I mean, it's probably, I'm not saying it's like 100%, but because the Earth's been that hot before in geological times, um, but the sun is a bit, it's quite substantially hotter now than it was during the Cretaceous, so things have changed. It's a bit like... The sun's hotter. Yeah, the sun gets hotter all the time as it, as it goes through its um, sequence, as a main sequence star. 
So it's um, I've got my, probably five or six percent. Mm. I'm not sure how much hotter it is now, but it's enough to make the dif- to make the difference. So it's a bit like if you heating up the planet, it's a bit like dragging our orbit a bit closer to that of Venus all the time. And ultimately, we're quite close to the inner edge of the habitability zone, which, you know, which is where water is liquid and life can exist um, in terms of the uh, astrobiology anyway. So the more you do that, the more you push the Earth towards the Venusian runaway greenhouse, which ultimately, because Venus probably started out with the same amount of water that we've got, but it eventually ended up in the atmosphere and you got a runaway greenhouse effect and all the water was eventually lost. It basically boiled off the oceans and they disappeared. So we could, you could push the plants into that if we're not very clever. Because this is the thing about a lot of this stuff, isn't it? That like, This isn't necessarily what I think, although I do catch myself thinking it sometimes. It is currently, well, we're recording this at the end of April and it's warm. It's warmish for April. It's been warm for a while out there. Um... And then you just kind of catch yourself thinking, oh, it's just going to be a bit warmer. That's all it is. Like, it'll be three degrees, four degrees warmer. And obviously, that's kind of not the case. But what you're saying is, no, no, Dave, you're cretin. It's not going to be four degrees warmer. It's going to be Venus, which is a different kind of thing. So how? <laughs> what, what's going on? There's a big difference. <laughs> uh, what is the main difference there? How come a few degrees, which is all it is, of extra heat makes everything into Venus? Well, I guess it's the average. We're talking about global averages here. So, yes, the weather can sh- shift by degrees within hours, and you know, you you well, you you, know, you notice it, but it's not it's not the difference between life and death. Um, I, so, I th- the way I look at it is to try and think about it geologically. I mean, to make the Earth uh, to go back to an Earth which is two, three degrees warmer than now, you have to go back to the Pliocene, which is three, four, five million years ago. Um, so the Earth's been within a degree or two of where we are now for a very long time. Um, and if you go back to even even further than that, back to the Eocene or even to the Cretaceous when the dinosaurs were around, uh, hot periods of Jurassic, you can find a world which was uh, five or six degrees warmer even more than it is now, but it's a world without any ice. There's no polar ice. There's rainforest growing on the Antarctic continent at the South Pole. Uh, and... It's, you know, the Arctic Ocean is about the same temperature as the Mediterranean. So... Yeah, yeah, but your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. And, and by the way, this, this, it's, it's scary to, to look at this stuff, but it's a world that we can almost certainly still avoid, um, even with... Uh, you know, with with cu- cutting carbon emissions in ways which we can certainly imagine now. So by no means are we doomed to this apocalyptic future. I think it's useful and interesting to look at it and to be better informed really about what could happen if we continue to increase fossil fuel emissions. Um, just gives us all the more reason to, you know, redouble down on, on low carbon campaigning. Because I wanted to ask you about that. I guess, because there's, I wonder if, when I was reading it, and it is really good, scary as hell, but really good, and it's important to understand, and I do agree, to have the arguments under your fingertips. Were you forcing yourself to put that bit at the end where you essentially say, <laughs> it's all right, we're not screwed as long as we act? Do you, did you feel, as, if, as you're writing this stuff, that you still actually believe that? 
or that your publisher just wouldn't let it out the door without a nice kind of optimistic ending? No, the publisher has, not, has nothing to do with that uh, equation. I'm, I, well, partly it's, I'm an optimistic person. I don't feel particularly pessimistic about the future. Um, there's a lot of quite positive trends which are going on at the moment, like we're dramatically reducing the the burning of coal in many industrial countries and so on. So we're by no means on the worst case scenario and I don't see any reason why we should return to it. Um, also, as a, as a campaigner, uh, telling people all is lost and it's too late isn't great strategy, especially if it's not true. Uh, in fact, in many ways, it's almost a kind of denialism. You notice the, the yeah. kind of the opposition, the, the, the other side, if you like, go from it's not too bad, you know, and it won't, won't happen, to, oh, it's too late, it's really awful, there's nothing we can do. And so I see those kinds of things on the same spectrum of denialism. And at, at no point, and I make this for a point very clear at the end of the book, at no point do we completely lose agency. There's always going to be something mm. we can do to cut, either cut emissions or even potentially to remove carbon from the atmosphere and turn the thermostat back down. You could even put, and I don't back this idea currently, but we could even put sulfate aerosols in the stratosphere and have a direct cooling effect. So there's, you know, the idea that at some point we're on this unstoppable treadmill, I think is, is both wrong and, and, and dangerous. Tell you what, there's a lot of facts in there. A lot of scary <laughs> facts. Um, what are the... What are the things about climate change that you think... So we're all familiar with, like, polar bears are buggered and it's going to get hotter. Are there some... When you were doing the research, are there some surprising things that come out that maybe we don't quite... haven't quite appreciated are going to have a big impact? What's, what's the stuff that made you go this time round? Oh, bloody hell, I didn't realise that. There's some things which um, seemed more of a problem back back then you remember that film the day after tomorrow about they're going to be a new new, new global deep freeze and the uh the north atlantic conveyor was going to stop you recall what you said about how polar melting might disrupt the north atlantic current yes well i think it's happening that kind of stuff looks a lot less likely now and um so oh really yeah i, I mean the the conveyor probably is slowing down but it, the overall rate of warming is so rapid that it doesn't do anything to make things colder anywhere, really. Wow. So there's, there's some things like that which uh, seem seem less uh, less scary, um, but at mo- most of it's got worse. <laughs> what can I say? And uh, I just thought, it's, you know, so so I started out almost trying to be sceptical and hope, you know, well, sea level rise is another one, maybe. Um, it's no one should drown with sea level rise of a few millimeters a year, right? It's not going to you're not going to be standing there. It's not going to go over your head. Yeah, you'll but, wake up with the with the sea yeah, coming at your door. Yeah. yeah, it's not like a tsunami. It, you know that might be an analogy, but it's not the same. Um, whereas uh, there's some some things that happen much more quickly, uh, and and those are the things. And and also I think I've got more of a focus on biodiversity loss this time round. Mm. Um, you know, we're not humans are not the only species of interest and importance on this planet, and uh, losing most of the rainforests and a lot of other major biomes like coral reefs and things is uh, um, is is I, I don't know I, I feel as strongly as that as I do about impacts on on human societies. Yeah. 
What do we do about the fact that no one is meaningfully, not no one, but lots of people are not meaningfully engaging with the realities of where we're at and where we're headed? Because um, it's it's one thing to kind of set it all out in a lot of detail, as you have. And, you know, clearly we've seen a lot of political developments with the rise of the school strikes and Extinction Rebellion and that kind of transformation, certainly in this country, of the of the campaigning landscape, um, but also elsewhere around, around the world. But still, lots and lots and lots of people and lots of politicians and lots of businesses don't meaningfully engage with the severity of the risk. What, what are we supposed to do about that? Um... See, there's, we're going to be in a different world now, post-COVID, and it's difficult to, I think, make any meaningful um, predictions because it's it's like a world war. I mean, it's it's just going to be transformed in, in some way, and I don't know how it's going to look. Um, before COVID, so in the year or two, as you mentioned, yes, we saw Greater Thunberg's... Um, Fridays for Future, all of that, uh, and, and XR as well, Extinction Rebellion really taking off. And those things, I think, combined, they did have a transformative impact on politics. Um, and not just in the UK. You've got uh, zero, zero carbon targets now um, increasingly becoming part of the political landscape. Um, and you can't row back from that stuff, and you have to start bringing forward policies in the relatively short term to meet those goals. You know, we're already looking at um, getting uh, fossil fuel cars off the roads in, in the UK. We've more or less shut down coal already, uh, years ahead of schedule, which I never thought would happen. Um, and Dave tells me off for being uh, <laughs> optimistic about that. Why would you not I, be optimistic about that? I always try and bang on, bang on about how good that is, and he tells me off and says, what? yeah, 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 whatever. Hang on. What about? Tell, I, tell, the thing tell I tell, why the thing I tell you, position. the thing I tell you off about, is about banging on about how it's all right because we've managed to save a small stoat from going extinct somewhere in the Scottish countryside. That's what I told you off about. Well, your speciesist, as I've told you many times. <laughs> well, I like stoats, but to go back to the bigger picture. Um, those are all reasons to be optimistic. The thing is, with with COVID, and I, uh, we're still in the early stage of the pandemic, so it's difficult to know what's. But you know, this is a. It's almost a moment of, of collective unity. You know, we know we've, we've transformed the economy within a space of two or three weeks um, for this lockdown period. Yeah. We know that's temporary and it, sh- it has to be temporary because it's, it's being disastrous, obviously, for a lot of people's jobs, livelihoods and so on. But it just goes to show when we start to open up again, we don't have to open up in the same way. We don't have to go back to polluting the air and um, dirtying uh you know the the dirty economy particularly when you've got big stimulus packages economic um restarting all of that kind of stuff so i i think that we could more almost jump start directly into uh, a much greener economy in in a much shorter space of time than we perhaps could have envisaged pre-pandemic just because it shows how you know it was it was inconceivable to even question the the growth of aviation before Mm. And now look, I can look out the window. No, not a single contrail. The whole thing shut down. 
My kid pointed at a plane earlier today. Yeah, what's that, Daddy? And what's that it thing was, like, up in the sky? Basically, was yeah. yeah. And you know, we live in 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 London under a flight path. It's, there's always hundreds of planes in the air, so it's unremarkable. But like, it's the first one we'd seen for a few days, and he pointed at it. It was like, what's that plane doing up there? Right, and if you'd said if you'd said to anyone, right, we've got to do this because of carbon emissions, you'd have been the most so extreme that you'd have, you wouldn't have been permitted in a building, right? You'd be, basically be sectioned and sent to an asylum for making such an absurd suggestion that we should, you know, stop aviation. But it's happened already, maybe for a different reason. But it shows actually that things which were once inconceivable are now already occurring. Um, And if we're going to restart aviation, then let's keep demand much lower. Let's stick with a lot of the online um, networking that we've already learned, all learned how to adopt. Um, And let's look at decarbonizing long distance transport in the longer term. Properly, I mean, I'm, you know, seriously, we don't we don't start it up again if it involves dumping millions more tons of carbon into the atmosphere. Ah, oh, Ted, I just remembered that we're all going to die. <laughs> Dougal, uh, I just wanted to say, uh, I know sometimes I'm a little short with you. Sometimes I'm not as patient as I should be. But you know, in the end, we're the best of friends. What do you mean? Well, <laughs> But yeah, in the in the book, it, it seems like you're kind of, uh, you know, by pointing out that all of the positive trends that, that you've mentioned and that we've seen in terms of lots of solar and lots of wind and all the rest of it has done nothing to stop the Keeling curve, that, that measure of how the concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere just going up and up and up. And then you set out at the, at the back end of the book just how much we've got to kind of radically reduce uh, the amount of fossil fuels, well, and combustion of fossil fuels, essentially, to have any chance. So it felt like in that book, you were kind of saying this isn't really doable. Ha- is that true? And has COVID changed that? Um, That's a really interesting question. Um, COVID is probably going to reduce carbon emissions globally by um, a few percentage points. So, I don't know, probably less than 5% in a year, which is huge, by the way, in terms of what's ever happened before. Uh, it generally goes up by 2 or at most 3% a year. Um, but it's not going to cut it by 50%. And actually, we'd have to be, uh, my understanding is to, to meet this 1.5 degrees target, we have to be pretty much zero carbon globally within 10 to 15 years from now. Um, so, no, I don't think that's going to happen. But... The corollary of that is not that it's too late, we've not saved the planet, we'll, you know, start weeping and go home. It's all right, we've got to, nothing changes. We've got the same objectives we always had, which is to cut as much as humanly possible in order to maybe, all right, let's go for 1.6 degrees if we're not going to make 1.5 or 1.7. You know, at no point, and this is the point, this is what I say at the back, at the end of the book, at no point is it too late. It's always always something we can do to make sure the situation doesn't uh, escalate further. Because four degrees is better than five, which is better than six, if it ever exactly. came that bad, right? Yeah, It seems yeah. trite. It seems trite, actually, but you'd be surprised how the focus on targets detracts from that understanding because it's like, oh, yeah. it's too late now. And if it's too late, well, there's no point in bothering. You know, so much of this is binary. So much of this is just, oh, well, we have 10 years to save the planet or not. You know, uh, and we have ten years to stop everything or not, and 
I reckon we all have a bloody good go at doing that, but trying and getting 90% of the way there is better than nothing. Well, and I remember writing, we have 100 months to save the planet, a lot longer ago than 100 months. So we've not saved the planet, what does that mean? You know, so it actually makes you look a bit foolish if you set these kinds of targets. I mean, I know it's a way to try and give an urgency to the situation, but that's, that's already beginning to happen. So, yeah, <laughs> it's important to understand it's never too late. Do you think that information is enough? So one of the things you said that has changed in between uh, the first version of the book and this version is you're maybe a bit more cynical about the fact that just telling people how bad stuff is is going to change things. Do you, do you still think that? Yeah, and that's a big question in a kind of broader pro-science campaigning. Um, it's what's called the deficit model. Is the idea that people don't have enough information about something and if you simply give them more information they will then realise that they've got it wrong or, you know, that their minds will change about an issue. I mean, you could see it for um, for GMOs, for genetic modification, which has been a very polarised issue. Uh, all the environmental groups like Friends of the Earth and Greenpeace back in the day campaigned strongly against it. Um, but I don't think the addition of more and more science into that equation has changed most people's minds. It certainly hasn't changed the minds of the big environmental groups. So it's not that they lack information and that you give more information than it it, it makes people reconsider because there's a lot more going on about this. There's kind of tribal identities. There's, uh, you know, the the need not to be seen to <laughs> to throw away uh, 20 years worth of campaigning and, and lots of, you know, and everyone has these kinds of biases, if you like, which prevent them simply making up their minds or changing their minds when information is provided. And I think it's the same for, for climate. It's become a very polarised, very politicised issue, particularly in the US, but to a certain extent there's a bit of a left-right polarisation going on there. You know, when did you ever change somebody from left to right or vice versa by giving them more information? It's, that's not the way human psychology work and it works and it's, it's not the way that any of this communication is working. It goes the other way of anything, doesn't it? Like if, if you tell people, uh, you shouldn't do that because uh, I'm right and you're wrong, they will probably say, you're a bastard and I'm even more determined to do it now. That's my experience. Yeah, I've I've learned that the hard way. Um, <laughs> it, it, yeah, I mean, I've so I'm not I'm not feeding in this information to and expecting people naively to go oh well, oh I see now now Mark's written this book and now I now realise I've got to take climate change more seriously. Um, I think it's useful to have out there for people who already look at climate as a serious issue. Um, if, if some people shift from being less sceptical, then that would be great. But I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, uh, by and large but the reality is that most most governments give or take the odd Bolsonaro or Trump most governments do take climate seriously and having this uh, having this kind of science made more available to a wider audience I think is still a helpful thing to do in order to fulfill my solemn duty to protect America and its citizens the United States will withdraw from the Paris Climate Accord. One of the things we're not quite sure when and how it's going to happen now in these big, mahusive climate talks that were supposed to be happening at the end of 2020 in Glasgow, but they've been delayed because of the pox. And 
we don't know exactly when that will happen. And do you think that that kind of big international model of, you know, loads of people in suits get together in a room and talk about how important climate change is and they all promise to do something which isn't good enough. Do you think that that is part, still really part of the answer to this stuff? Or is it much more now about countries getting on with stuff and doing it? Own? I don't know. I feel very ambivalent about the COPs, the, these UN climate conferences that happen every year. I never enjoy them and I've been to a few. Um, but they do, you know, the, the fact that you have all of the world's governments pretty much together in one room has to serve some purpose. Uh, and I think, you know, when was Paris? 2015? That's when we got this mm. target for 1.5 or 2 degrees. And having that as something that then can be then referred back to in national policy and say, well, if it's that globally, then this is what we need to do nationally. And, you know, it kind of cascades down and helps drive policy change elsewhere. I think that's useful, probably more useful than having no international coordination and no overall targets um but you shouldn't i mean it's not like the fact that uh, paris was agreed meant that we'd we were going to have 1.5 because uh all the government said right we'll go for this 1.5 target and then then they produced their own national policies and they all added together to about 3.2 degrees and just and so to, that you've always got this gap yeah well i mean just to to join up to the, to your book 3.2 degrees is bad right that is like uninhabitable large areas of the planet uninhabitable um dramatic decrease in the world's food supply um major biodiversity loss across all of the world's biomes and so on and so forth i could uh, rattle off the list but it wouldn't help that's the spirit george if nothing else works then a total pig-headed unwillingness to look facts in the face will see us through so we, uh, one of our listeners, uh, Jonathan Thompson, had a question that uh, he was basically asking about different tactics for sort of how people might do things, because obviously we are not Donald Trump or indeed Boris Johnson. Um, Fortunately, Ollie's, yeah. Ollie's kind of Boris Johnson in some ways. Um, go, uh, go on. <laughs> do you want to explain that one? Um but there are things that we can do. You know, there are petitions and there are naming and shaming and there are the things like what you used to do, you know, civil disobedience and being naughty and getting in trouble and high-profile lawsuits. What are the things that you think are the most effective for kind of for people to be doing as part of, as part of this great big global fight? Um, I think it, it's kind of, I know this sounds wishy-washy, but it's a spectrum, but you need all of them. So you can't just have people out in the streets shouting because otherwise nobody is inside the room to translate that and to make things actually happen. Um, but, yeah, so I think hopefully post-pandemic, whatever happens, we will see a resurgence of the streets-type campaigning. I think the the kids' movement has been really, really transformative, actually. Because nobody could... I mean, I know the old white men out there hate Greta Thunberg, but... It just makes it look like like horrible old white men. You know, it doesn't do them any favours. So they've not found anything they could throw at her that sticks um, because she's just so authentic. She is what she is. She's like a 17-year-old Swedish schoolgirl who just did this thing by herself. And that's what's been so compelling about that story. And that's why I think it's caught everyone's imagination. And including all all of our kids. My daughter's been out there giving speeches at the age of 12. And, you know, you can't however much it annoys people who are driving by in their cars, they can't say anything. They've got no moral basis for opposing what these kids mm. are doing. So that's why I think this is so critically important. I, I hope that really resurges 
um, uh, uh, you know, as the lockdown uh, starts, you know, starts to unwind. If you don't want me to destroy you, Mark, thank you so much for uh, joining us via the magical information superhighway uh, and telling us all about your. <laughs> You're so old. <laughs> all about your. You sound like book. Al Gore. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. You're not the first person to have said that. Um, uh, remind everyone, remind the class what the name of your book is and uh, and anything else about how people can follow you, find out more about what you're up to, that kind of thing. Oh, well, thanks for the plug opportunity. Um, the book is Our Final Warning, Six Degrees of Climate Emergency, uh, published by Hop Collins. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Mark underscore Linus and other places as well, um, at, such as at the Cornell Alliance for Science out of Cornell University, where we do a lot of the pro-science broader campaigning. So thanks for having me on. It's been great talking to you, Dave and Ollie, and um, look forward to catching up soon. Nice one. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Mark. I think the people in this country have had enough of experts. Right, so that is just about it for another episode of Lockdown Babble. Uh, thank Ooh. you very, very much, Mark, for writing the book, for writing the last book as well, and for like getting a load of... He's done loads of books, done... we haven't even talked about it. Like he did that book, The God Species, which oh, is yeah. very good. Yeah, 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 yeah. All about saying how basically, like, well... We're in control of this planet now. We may not have chosen it, but we are, and we better use it with great power comes great responsibility and all that sort of stuff. It's very good. Go, nice and, go and check out his other his other books. I've got back into my Kindle in lockdown. I sort of thought, why don't I stop buying books, any, like expensive books anyway, and been getting them on Kindle, and it's great. So order Mark's books on your Kindle um, and be clever. Give money to Amazon and stop uh, the ability ever to share your book with anyone else and just feed Jeff Bezos's vast fortune. And when you finish doing that, make sure you never, ever come off social media because distraction all is the only thing we've got left. Is exactly. That what you want? Exactly. I was going to say all of those things and I'm so glad you did it for me. Thank you very much, Mark, for coming on to t- chat to us. Thank you, as ever, to Dickie Moore, uh, who does the music that ends, starts and intertwinkles this podcast. Thank you to Arthur Stovall, who has designed our logo, what you can find on our T-shirts. I suppose you can still order them. I've no idea if T-Mill, who make them, is still going. You're nodding. Looks like they're still going. Order some T-shirts. Who knows? One might turn up one day. Um, thank you to, to Arthur. Thank you to you, Dave, for yes, you oh, know, me. being yes. you. And I thought you were thanking the listener. No, no, I'll come around to that. But thank you to whoever lent Dave some clippers to cut his hair because it is better <laughs> for everybody that there is no record of what that looks like. Yes, although it's, it's getting a little bit shaggy around the back there, so I might have to go and borrow them clippers again but mm. yes it was it was mayhem man at shearer's island was fast becoming um <laughs> shearer's mangrove dave's dave's peninsula yes no it was crazy um and yeah thank, thank you very much oh and to you lot for listening you can get in touch with us tell us what you thought of the show as so many people do you can email us at hello at sustainababble.fish you can find us on the facebook just search sustainababble or we are on the twitter at the Babble Wagon. And if you want to help contribute to the running costs of this here Babble, uh, please do so by bunging us a bit of dosh at our Patreon page, which is wobbly wobbly wobbly.patreon.com slash sustainer babble. Good. 
Well, I'm off to go and imagine a world in which not only human life is wiped out, but all life on Earth. And what was it? Are we going to be like Saturn or Venus? Can't remember which one it was. Venus. Let's go Venus. <laughs> a big, very hot, gassy place, um, which, to be honest, Excellent. is quite like the bedroom I wake up in most days. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I'll, I'll leave you to stew in that lovely juice hole, and I shall see you next week. All right, bye. Bye. Yeah, and, if, and that beeping you can hear is uh, the fire alarm in my house. Isn't that nice? So, uh, as a particular oh. kind of irony to show how urgent the situation is, <laughs> the fire alarm you, is ringing. Should, should you go and um, should you, are you on fire? That out? No, it yeah. seems to stop now, and I can only smell a bit of smoke. So I'm sure it's fine. Let's just carry on with business as usual. And <laughs> um, what was the question?